All right, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. My friend Steve Eisenbar surprised me the other day. Where are you, Steve? There he is. He dropped a 591-page book on my desk. Do you have this? No. I answered. It's yours, he said, smiling. Here it is. Big book. It's called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. It's written by a guy named Eric Metaxas, I think is how you pronounce his name. He also wrote Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce and the Heroic Campaign to End Slavery. You remember the big movie that came out a couple years ago? It was turned into a motion picture. Uh, what's fascinating is, uh, guess who Metaxas' pastor is? Tim Keller of Redeemer, New York City. Isn't that interesting? Why am I bringing up this book? Here's the reason. Besides Romans, the key book of the Reformation was Galatians. And the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, is arguably, probably, the greatest outpouring of God's Spirit in the history of the church since Pentecost. That's 2,000 years of church history. The greatest spiritual awakening in the history of the church. Now, the German reformer Martin Luther, who is very, very instrumental in this, wrote a commentary on Galatians that became and has now been used for 500 years to reach powerfully people with the Galatian gospel or justification by faith or grace salvation. In fact, many spiritual giants had picked that book up over the years and God personally, powerfully, moved in their life, either bringing them to conversion or if they were believers, awakening them to a justification that comes from the outside. Even John Wesley was impacted by this book. Now, why this book? Am I mentioning it? Luther was a German. Bonhoeffer was a German from the same spiritual tradition as Luther. He treasured the same gospel as Luther. The same gospel that we're looking at in Galatians. The same grace salvation of Galatians. Now Bonhoeffer pastored in Germany. He pastored during the rise of the Nazis. He pastored during the reign of the Nazis. He pastored during World War II. As the Nazis and Hitler exterminated over six million people of a nation of Israelites or Jews. Bonhoeffer tried two times to assassinate Hitler. This is my kind of pastor. (laughs) He was deeply involved in the famous Valkyrie, which was turned into a motion picture two years ago, and Operation 7. Now he was found out, and I think it was as short as two weeks. I'll have to see. Steve, do you know? Have you read the end yet? Okay, I think it's as close to two weeks before the Allies came into Germany and hit the concentration camp that he was in. He was hung at 39 years of age. Some people can live a lifetime of impact in a very, very short amount of time. Here's the point. Keller brings it up in the foreword. How could the church of Luther, the church in Germany, that great teacher of the gospel, have ever come to such a place that it capitulated to Hitler? That 
That's our question this morning. That's the question that we'll look at in the text this morning. How could the church of Luther, the church built on the gospel of Galatians, fall so far? And then let's get a little personal. Could it happen again? Could it happen to the American church? Could it happen to you? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified, the original is a little more clear. It says, but if seeking, present tense, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? There's the question. Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we do come to you thanking you that you reign on high and you are the God of the, the light and the God of the night, the God enthroned over the flood and the God enthroned over the great calm. So, Lord, we ask for your help because we acknowledge that in ourselves we are needy, weak, powerless, not in control, deeply flawed, imperfect, sinful people. So we're so thankful that seeing the treasures in this text does not arise out of our own goodness or even based on anything in us. So, oh Lord, we call upon you to unleash heaven, to fill us with your spirit, and to give and grant the things that are talked about in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how could the church of Luther, built on Galatians, ever get to a place that it did two things? The church did two things. It either embraced Hitler or it surrendered to him. That's what happened in Germany. How did it get to that point? Here's the answer. I'm going to give you the answer now. The answer is this. The true gospel was lost in the German church. The true gospel, the gospel of Galatians, the gospel of grace salvation was lost in the German church. Paul begins his great book in a very shocking way. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right from the beginning, Paul proves in Galatians how easy and how quickly it is to turn away from the true gospel. 
And in fact, Paul was just getting back from his church planning endeavors to all those churches in Galatia when the follow-up team from Jerusalem did its rounds. And by the time they were done, and by the time he's still unpacking his robe, he gets the news of what's going on up there. Oh, it can happen very, very quick. Very, very quick in a group of folks. Very, very quick in an individual's heart, right? Now, Paul curses this reality. Now, he's not using profanity. He's cursing. What he's doing, he's saying, oh, God, would you immediately intrude with judgment upon anyone who touches or messes with their gospel? Anyone that tries to revise it. Literally, it's a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah when the sulfur came down and burned it up. That's the intrude now, please. And he does this two times. It's fascinating. Now, those of you who are wondering, you know, well, Paul did use profanity in this book. We're going to get to it. And he did it just, just to make the follow-up team mad, I think. We'll see it. But anyhow, the curses. He curses two times. This is in verse 8 and in verse 9. You ready? Look at it. But even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Drop down to 9. As we have said before, I'll say it again. If anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Why is all this so serious? Why? The answer is the point of the passage this morning. Here it is. You're going to hear it over and over again. And, and may every time we hear it, it just it sinks a little deeper and it, its tentacles go a little further into your heart and actually begin to produce life in you. Here's the point. The point is this. Whatever gospel you build your life around, whatever gospel it is, whether it's the true gospel or the false gospels that we're about to look at, whatever ones you build your life about, build your life around, not only will impact your life after death, but your life before death. Whatever gospel you build your life around will impact your life powerfully before you die. All right? Whatever your gospel is will impact your inner life. Do you know what that is? The scriptures talk about your inner life. They describe it as the soul, the mind, the heart. It is, it is the seat of who you are. Now, we're a body and we're immaterial. There's the inner person and there's the outer person, and that makes you, you. And there's this interdependent relationship that goes back and forth between them, and we know that they're both valuable and they're both being redeemed because we know we're going to have a body, a resurrected body. But this inner man, this inner person is the life center of you. And whatever gospel you build your life around, that area will be greatly impacted. Your deepest hope, your deepest trust, your deepest treasures, your cosmic approval, your cosmic meaning in life, your sense of self, what life and happiness and peace is, your inner well-being is at stake on what you build your life around. Also, whatever you build your life around, the gospel will impact your relationships and how you treat others. I mean, exhibit A is Peter, Barnabas, and the Jewish Christians in Antioch, right? That's in 11 through 14. We've looked at that. Remember, they started building their life around what we just saw here, this false gospel. What did they do? It led to racism, religious superiority, and abuse. 
whatever you build your life around in the gospel, whatever your gospel is, it'll impact your church. In verse, exhibit B is the Galatian churches. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. That gospel that's hitting the Galatian churches is troubling them. And the word is literally used of turning them upside down and upsetting them. It's creating divisions, distractions, wrong directions in the church, missionless, powerless. No real impact on people, but a rather adverse impact on people. Whatever your gospel is will impact your community, your culture, and even your country. Exhibit C, Nazi Germany. The false gospel in Nazi Germany fueled, fueled Nazism. The other false gospel in Nazi Germany created spiritual cowards. So what false gospels are hitting the American church today and impacting communities and cultures in the country? So whatever you build your life around, the true gospel, the false gospels, whatever it is, will greatly impact, greatly impact your life, not only after death, but before death. And this is a, so far it's a scary thing. But oh boy, if you build it around the true gospel, what will it do to your inner life, your relationships, your church your community, and even country. That's exciting. Oh, that's exciting. Well, let's prove it. Let's prove the point here. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Here's what's happening. The follow-up team is calling Paul's gospel cheap grace. And I'm stealing that term from Bonhoeffer. Shamelessly. Paul is being accused that his gospel is cheap grace. That's what's happening. Here's what cheap grace goes like. It goes like this. God forgives sins. It's his job. So pass pass the pornography, please. God forgives. It's his job. So continue to be a fault finder in your marriage. Continue to be hypercritical in your relationships. And in your church and in your job. Look, God loves me, accepts me, I'm safe. So I'll pass in standing up for others who are being abused. I'll close my blinds when the trucks and the trains loaded with human cargo for the death camps go by my house. I'll keep my reputation and my status and my possessions and my family safe while over six million other families are torn apart and exterminated like bugs cheap grace now paul is very familiar with cheap grace he writes about it in romans we looked at it in our confession cycle cheap grace is a god gospel replacement that he's very familiar with and that he's being accused of Paul, now before we move any further, I want you to hear me. The greatest gospel preachers in the history of the church 
have all been accused of cheap grace. Is it a right charge? Technically, it's called antinomianism, licentiousness, spiritual relativism. Take your pick. It means anti-law. This is what it is. This gospel replacement is always on the move. It's always on the move. It's on the move in your life right now. It's on the move in the church right now. It's always on the move seeking our trust, seeking our worship, seeking our heart today. How? How does it do this? Well, it goes like this. When you look to your comfort when you look to your horizontal desires, and are horizontal desires bad? No, you've been made for horizontal desires. Are you made to be respected? Yes. Do you desire respect? Yes. Acceptance and to be loved? Yes. You have desires for horizontal desires, earthly, horizontal, human desires. When these desires you look to to save you, To be your well-being and to be the stuff of your happiness and to be your cosmic acceptance and your, your meaning and value in life and your happiness in life. When you look to your desires and passions, your pleasures on this horizontal, earthly, human realm. When you look to them to save you, you're, you're trusting and worshiping cheap grace. When grace is only in the abstract, you know what I mean by that? When it's only in the abstract. In other words, it's just something you do in the liturgy. It's this systematic idea that floats around out, out there. It's abstract. Grace. It's abstract and we have it in ideas and we have it in this distant, dry doctrine kind of thing. Or we get excited about the arguments of it, but it never personally hits your heart when grace is in the abstract you're trusting and worshiping cheap grace okay now when we do this if we get to the point where our comfort and our desires and our passions become the stuff of our meaning and life and give us well-being and and deep peace, and we look to it for joy, and we look to it to save us. When this happens, we'll never give up our comfort to be uncomfortable for others. To sacrificially serve, sacrificially love. We'll never give up our comfort because it's life and death to us. Our desires are life and death to us. That person's opinion of me, life and death, so I'll never give it up in order to stand up for my friends when they're being abused. We'll never give it up. We'll never have the courage to speak when someone's gossiping about somebody or slandering them. We don't have anybody's back. We're spiritual cowards. All right. Whatever gospel you build your life around, true gospel, false gospel, will not only impact your life after death, it'll impact your life before death. That's the point of the text. Now, Paul uses the strongest denial in the Greek language to address the accusation that he has a gospel, his true gospel is cheap grace. What is it? Do you see it? It's translated in the English Standard Version, certainly not. It's me genoito, certainly not. Now, we'd say this, you got to be kidding me. What drug are you high on? 
The Greek language here is communicating that it's not even possible. (laughs) It's not even possible. It's like believing that cows fly. In other words, the true gospel, the Galatian gospel, grace salvation, cannot be or produce cheap grace. It is impossible, Paul is saying. Impossible. Me genoito, he's saying. Okay? All right. Now look at verse 18. The beginning of 18, what do you see? You see that word for? Now he's going to start giving reasons why his gospel cannot be cheap grace. And if you look at 19, you'll see four again. So he's got two reasons that he's after. We're not going to get, we're going to get to both of them. We're not going to finish the whole text. We're going to have to take it the next week because there's so much involved here. So don't worry if you're wondering, man, he's still got two more verses to go and we're still here. Verse 18. Paul's giving the reason for why the true gospel can never be confused with a replacement gospel called cheap grace. Can't be. Look at verse 18. Here's his first reason. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what does this mean? It's fascinating. What Paul's doing is using a picture to make his point. And many scholars believe his picture is found in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility. Those of you familiar with Ephesians, it talks about this dividing wall of hostility. And the dividing wall of hostility mixes two pictures or two ideas into one idea. The first idea is the literal wall in the temple that separated Jew and Gentile. One idea. Second idea, the law of Moses. Put the two together, what he gets is the the law always creates disunity and division It doesn't make friends. Now there's a point there that we're just not going to spend time with, but the law only divides is what he's saying in Ephesians 2. It doesn't unite and create friends. Not with God, not with one another. Okay? Now what Paul is doing is he's picturing the law here in verse 18 as what was given to Moses as something that was torn down, but now it's presently being rebuilt. Do you see what's happening? If I tear down the law and now get back to rebuilding it, that's what he's saying. He says, I proved myself to be a transgressor. That's the point. Okay? So what Paul ends up doing is he ends up turning the tables on his accusers. The ones that are accusing him of cheap grace, he turns around and says, you've got the replacement gospel. You're worshiping and trusting a false gospel, and it's called works of the law or achievement salvation. Look in verses 15, 16. We looked at this last week, but remember what happened here. There's a contrast going on between works of the law and faith in Jesus Christ. And so in one verse that sums up the whole cosmos, one verse that sets aside two ways of trying to save yourself, that it's either two different gospels, two different paths, two different ways to build your life, two different approvals and justifications that are out there for you. And he basically is saying in verse in one verse in verse 16, you are either in one or the other. You are either trying to save yourself through achievement salvation or grace salvation. That's it. So it's Jesus or you. His righteousness, your righteousness. His perfect performing, your performance. His achievement, 
your achievement. His work, your work. The worth and work of his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, your worth and work. There are the two options. See that? Period. So here's what happens. He's addressing the accusation of cheap grace. And he comes and says, you've got a replacement gospel called achievement salvation. Works of the law. And when you look to that, when you look to your achievement, now we've got to make it a little more personal because for us we're thinking works of the law, yeah, sometimes I think that way, but the point is it's a very comprehensive term that interpreters and scholars and theologians have said it encompasses a whole way of life, a whole way of trying to build your life, a whole way of trying to save yourself, a whole way of trying to keep condemnation and failure and shame away from you. And to embrace some sort of cosmic security and approval in life for you. Okay? So what, what the text is saying. Works of the law summarizes this whole way of trying to build your life and find your life and save your life. Okay? What we do is we can certainly try to go for literal things in the law. But if we don't do that, we create our own. So here's some things that think about. When we look to our achievement, your success, your career, your performance, you're trying to approve yourself in your own eyes, feel worthy about yourself in your own eyes, or try to approve yourself in the eyes of others. When you look to your abilities, you look to religion, you look to manners, you look to moral conduct, race, politics, Certain standards, certain views, education, we hit on some of these last week, the use of our freedoms, like the use of alcohol and tobacco, financial standards, status standards, power control. When we look to these to save us, to keep condemnation away from us, and to justify our existence, we become Nazi-like. We become hard and cold, superior, and abusive to those who don't share our standards or don't measure up to our standards. That's the context of 11 through 14. That's the context of why he gets to the root of the gospel. The gospel, whatever it is, will produce even either 11 through 14 or chapters 5 and 6, which he's going to get to. Okay? Now, let's take a quick test. This test is primarily for Christians. This test is to help us see, you know, to what degree am I doing this? To what degree am I, am I holding on to this achievement salvation of my own life? Here's a quick test. It's just for Christians. It, it, it's going to reveal the degree you do this. Here it is. You ready? Are you a regular repenter? Okay, that's the test. If you're married, when was the last time you said, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, please forgive me? If you can't remember, you failed. If it wasn't on Saturday, you failed. If you're in any relationship or any conflict where there's only one repenter and it's not you, you failed.
I mentioned this the other night. I do marriage counseling for Nancy and I all the time. And I do marriage counseling with lots of folks. But here's the key. Right away, I can tell, right away, whether we can work on it or not, when you, if you identify, if I identify these are both two repenters, it's like, okay, what's going on? Let's kind of work through this together. But usually, the reason why they're there is because there's only one repenter. So it's no use talking to the other person because it's always that person's fault. And this person's always superior. And this person's always right. And this person takes his or her responsibility and pushes it off on the other person. Brothers and sisters, if you're not a regular repenter, achievement salvation gotcha. It has you. How rare is a regular repenter? It was so fascinating. Every time I was typing it up in Microsoft Word, it kept getting that red underline on it. I'm like, gosh, am I misspelling repenter? Am I making up a word? I don't know. I've been known to do that a time or two, so I went and hit the spell, and it's not even mentioned in the whole dictionary. Repenter. So regularly repenting, so rare, Microsoft Word doesn't have it. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, it is really rare in the church today. And the question we got to ask ourselves is, and this is what the book's asking us, I don't care what you say in your doctrinal confessions. The proof's in the pudding. That's the point of Galatians. The whole point that Paul is addressing These folks is because they withheld food fellowship from Gentile Christians and basically says, we don't accept you. We don't warmly welcome you. You're not acceptable to us. And Paul launches into the gospel because of the behavior. So brothers and sisters, if you're not a regular repenter, I don't care if you've read Burkhoff. Or you can tell me what justification by faith means. Okay? And I say that because Paul doesn't. So what's the good news? We're getting there. You ready? Look at verse 17. Here's the good news. Some of you are looking at me like, oh my word, where's the good news in that? Look at the first two statements that Paul says. This is interesting. It's called a first class apodosis. Okay? Just thought I'd impress you there. What this is saying is that the first two things that are said are assumed true, that they are true. The last thing that's said is not assumed true. He makes two propositions that are true. Here they are. First one, if seeking to be justified, in other words, you're justified, we too were found to be sinners. Justification and being a sinner at the same time are true. Being a servant of sin is false in the Greek construction of this text. Okay? What this means is is that a Christian 
is always a justified sinner simultaneously at the same time. That's why you're a regular repenter. You are deeply, lovingly, immeasurably accepted. And sinful and perfect and flawed at the same time. That's incredible news. You can stop trying to approve yourself. You can stop trying to have approval from other people. In yourself, you're deeply flawed and justified at the same time. Whatever gospel you build your life around will not only impact your life after death, but also before death. Now, Paul is ever the pastor. He never, he never bypasses an opportunity to participate in the work of grace in someone's life. So even against these folks that have this achievement salvation gospel, that are accusing him in the midst of accusing him of having a cheap grace gospel, right in the midst of it, he's seeking to minister to them. It's unbelievable. I mean, look what he does in verse 18. He seeks to try to pry open their heart of achievement salvation, and he tries to pry open their heart with the very thing they love the most, the law. Look how he does it. Do you see it? Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor specifically refers to breaking God's law. So again, he's, he's going at them to help them get grace. Here's what he's saying. If I go back to the works of the law, if I go back to achievement salvation, after I've already torn it down by believing in grace salvation, after I have torn the law down as a way to achieve salvation and find cosmic well-being and acceptance in life and approval, I've torn it down. If I go back to it, rebuild it, I prove myself to be the real sinner in my relationships and in my situations. Hmm. What does that mean? I think it goes like this. If I find achievement salvation in my race and -and so-and-so is not of my race and so I now look down on so-and-so and feel superior to so-and-so, and maybe abuse so-and-so in my thoughts and in my communication and in my actions, I'm proven to be the real sinner. I break what the whole commandments sum up. Love God, love others. It goes like this. If my law standard, my achievement salvation is a certain view or a certain standard, some of the things we talked about, whether you've done that with your politics or whether you've done that with your views of whatever it is, your certain views of freedom or your certain parenting issues or your way that you seem to keep the Sabbath hold, the way you go about it, doctrinal issues, you hold this as the way in which you stave off condemnation and actually become okay. When so-and-so doesn't have those standards or doesn't share those standards or doesn't measure up to those standards and we look down upon them or we abuse them in our thoughts and our words and our actions, 
Paul is saying, you prove yourself to be the real sinner, the real transgressor, okay? There's a couple of other reasons why, but I'm not going to get into those right now. Now, whatever gospel you build your life around, this is the point, whatever it is, it will greatly impact not only your life after death, but I hope you're beginning to see your life before death. Do you see that? Okay, now, here's how we're going to end. We'll hit the rest of the passage later, but we've got to end somewhere. Here it is. Bonhoeffer saw the two replacement gospels at work in Germany. And the Bible summarizes basically two replacement gospels. It identifies two replacement gospels to the real gospel, and it was just found in this text. What's the first one? We just looked at it. Paul was accused of it, cheap grace. The other is achievement salvation, or Paul identifies it as works of the law. Now, if you were an ancient church father named Tertullian, you'd say these are the two thieves of the gospel, always trying to steal Jesus from us, okay? Now, what Paul assumes and what the Bible assumes that these two gospels are already at work in your life because you're simultaneously justified and deeply flawed. So you've got remaining temporary realities of this in your life. You and I do. Now, I know which one I tend to be. Do you know which one you tend to be? I know that I'm a Pharisee saved by grace. I know that. Which one are you? Okay. Now, Bonhoeffer saw these two gospel replacements as the root cause for the German church's capitulation to Hitler and the Nazis. All right? So whatever your gospel really does, whatever your gospel is, it really does matter. Now, both Luther and Bonhoeffer built their lives around the true gospel, the gospel of Galatians that we're looking at right here. And no one, if you looked at their lives, would accuse them. Luther and Bonhoeffer would accuse them in their lives of having cheap grace, a grace that doesn't go, okay? In fact, Bonhoeffer wrote these words in the midst of all the evil that was around him. This is what he wrote. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act, he says. Can you imagine all that great evil all around you? And to pen those words as a lonely pastor? His friend Nehemiah was put in prison. And while he was in one of those death camps, one of the chaplains came around the fence and recognized, was ministering to the folks in the camp and recognized Nehemiah and said, Brother, what are you doing in there? And Nehemiah said, Brother, why are you not in here? May God raise up more Bonhoeffers. May God raise up more Martin Neomolers. How will God do this? The answer is in Galatians. By raising up pastors, by raising up church leaders, by raising up men and women, by raising up teenagers, by raising up children who build their lives around the Galatian gospel, the true gospel. And who are able to identify and repent of the false gospels. Those two we looked at. 
that are in their life on a regular, continual basis. That's how. If Bonhoeffer was here, he'd say, by God raising up pastors and church leaders and men and women and teenagers and children who build their lives around costly grace. That's his word. Costly grace versus cheap grace, one of the thieves of the gospel. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. Paul's saying, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Do you see what he's saying? Look how personal this is. This is, he's using I. He is, this is deeply personal to him. This is not distant. It's not dry. It's not abstract. It's like, I died to the law. I live to God, he says. He's basically saying, listen, I've died to the perfectionistic demands of the law. I have died to the cursings and the condemnation and the death of failing the law. I've died to it. And now I'm alive to God. I am I'm more accepted and approved and loved than I can possibly imagine. I stand before God alive and free. <coughs> How did Paul get that way? How did Bonhoeffer and Luther get that way? The answer is costly grace. It's costly grace not because Paul tried harder and tried to make grace work more in his life. It's costly grace because the most infinitely precious, valuable, worthy, holy, supreme commodity in the cosmos was given to get you grace. It took the blood of God to get you grace. God spilled his own blood so you can have grace. He crushed his own son. costly grace. Brothers and sisters, if we build our lives around that, we can face anything. Even a Hitler. 